Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution as we read a chapter on what has been dubbed War Communism of how the Bolshevik government has managed society with the constraints of being mid-slash-post-war and the ways that has ravaged the country. So, let's continue. Worker Unrest It was only a matter of months before the new incumbents in power realized they had greatly overestimated the level of their working-class support. Crucially, what had been a phalanx of supporters in the industrial working class soon either left the factories or became politically much less reliable. Over a million workers fled the towns for the villages, several hundred thousand left to join the Red Army, and tens of thousands took up administrative positions in the Soviet, trade union, and party organs. The result was that between 1917 and 1920, the number of factory and mine workers fell from 3.6 million to 1.5 million. The fall was dramatic in Petrograd, where by July 1918, the industrial workforce was only about 100,000, 30% of its size on the 1st of January 1917. Footnote 57. The Bolsheviks defined this process as one of declassing, and explained the phenomenon of worker unrest, which was endemic during the Civil War, as being due to a strengthening of petty bourgeois elements in the working class. It is true that many of the Bolsheviks' most ardent supporters left industry, but less proletarianized workers with ties to the land were also more likely to leave the factories and head for the countryside, as jobs and food disappeared from the cities, than those who had been resident in the cities for a generation or more. Moreover, a much-depleted working class continued to exist, even in Petrograd, where shrinkage was greater than elsewhere. The city's industry produced half the country's artillery and shells, half its explosives, as well as overcoats, boots, and so on, to meet the demands of the Red Army. Footnote 58. During the Civil War, workers experienced a massive drop in their living standards. By 1920, the real value of the average wage was reckoned to be 38% of the 1913 level, but this was made up largely of rations, free housing, transport, clothing, and other goods. Money wages had lost most of their importance. By 1920, in Petrograd, the average real wage was 9.6% of its 1913 level. Footnote 59. The search for food, the necessity of doing work on the side, such as making cigarette lighters, together with a huge increase in susceptibility to disease, led to staggering levels of absenteeism and a decline in the already dismally low level of productivity. In September 1920, at the huge Modovilica works in Perm, absenteeism stood at 50% and theft and deliberate damage to steam engines were rife. The vision that the factory committees had upheld in 1917 of sustaining production by entrenching workers' power at the level of the shop floor faded within months. The first all-Russian trade union congress in January 1918 
resolved that factory committees should be absorbed into the trade unions, becoming their workplace cells, and trade unions, as organizations embracing whole branches of industry, were tasked with overseeing the implementation of the government's economic policy. There was no intention as yet, however, to do away with worker participation in industrial management. The first Congress of Councils of National Economy in late May 1918 agreed that the management boards of nationalized enterprises should comprise one-third worker representatives, alongside representatives from technical staff, trade unions, and state economic organs. This was not to Lenin's liking, for he had come to the view that the only way of improving labour productivity was to put a single individual in charge of each enterprise. Up until the end of 1919, the defenders of collegial management in the trade unions put up stiff resistance to this idea. In 1919, only 11% of enterprises were run by individual managers although by autumn 1920, this had risen to 82%. Convinced that the Russian worker needed to learn how to work, Lenin also demanded that technical specialists and managers be offered high salaries and superior conditions of employment in return for their expertise. This was a policy that was deeply unpopular with many workers. A worker told the Ninth Party Conference in September 1920, Quote, I'll go to my grave hating Spetsy. We have to hold them in a grip of iron, the way they used to hold us. End quote. Footnote 60. The workers' opposition, the faction that emerged in 1919 to promote the role of the trade unions in the management of the economy, counterposed mass enthusiasm to hierarchy, compulsion, and privileges. But Lenin insisted that technical competence was more important than zeal, human qualities, or saintliness. By the end of the Civil War, therefore, not much was left of workers' control as practiced in 1917. The official justification was that it had become outmoded since the economy had now passed into the ownership of a workers' state, allowing worker control to be institutionalized at a higher level, in trade union inspectorates and organs of state inspection such as the Workers and Peasants Inspectorate, Rabgren, which was responsible for scrutinizing the state administration. The Civil War saw the autonomy of the trade unions severely curtailed. The first trade union congress rejected the Menshevik view that trade unions in a worker's state could remain neutral or independent and took the view that since the state itself had taken on the task of defending workers' interests, their chief function must now be to, quote, organize production and restore the battered productive forces of the country, end quote. To some, this seemed to deprive unions of any capacity to defend the day-to-day -day interests of workers, and certain unions, such as those of printers and chemical workers, remained bastions of Menshevism. The Bolsheviks tried rather desperately to undercut their influence by manipulating trade union elections, by arresting diehard defenders of trade union autonomy, or by the simple expedient of closing a union and setting up a red one instead. 
as was done with the Printers' Union in Petrograd in November 1918. Other unions also proved resistant to Bolshevik takeover, such as those of railway workers, commerce and industrial employees, and bakers. Footnote 61. At the same time, Bolshevik trade union leaders retained a certain independence from government, and were able to resist one-person management and the militarization of labor. In August 1920, this led to such tension that Trotsky peremptorily replaced the elected boards of the Railway and Water Transport Unions with a Central Committee for Transport, which combined the functions of Economic Commissariat, Party Organ, and Trade Union. The All-Russian Central Council of Trade Unions condemned this action for importing, quote, bureaucratic methods and orders from above, end quote, into trade union affairs. In the three months preceding the Ninth Party Congress in March 1920, a fierce debate took place concerning the role of trade unions. Trotsky, Bukharin, and others called for the, quote, planned transformation of the unions into apparatuses of the workers' state, end quote while the Bolshevik trade union leader, Mikhail Tomsky, a metal worker from the age of 13, demanded that the unions retain some autonomy while insisting that their principal task was to oversee the implementation of economic policy. For its part, the workers' opposition argued that trade unions should become organs actually running the economy a position that the Eighth Party Congress had appeared to support in March 1919, but which was condemned as an anarcho-syndicalist deviation by the time of the Tenth Party Congress in March 1921. That Congress overwhelmingly supported a resolution of Lenin which rejected Trotsky's proposal to make the trade union state organs, instead defining them as schools of communism in which their members would learn how to administer the economy. Footnote 62. As early as spring 1918, worker support for the government started to erode, as unemployment, food shortages, and declining wages began to bite. Footnote 63. Mounting bitterness was manifest in a revival of support for Mensheviks and SRs in the Soviets. Not untypical was the giant steel and locomotive plant at Sormovo near Nizhny Novgorod, where discontent over food shortages and abuses by local commissars led to new elections to the Soviet on the 10th of April, in which the Bolsheviks won 5,306 votes, the SRs 4,887, Mensheviks 2,887, left SRs 433, SR Maximalists, 346, and non-party white-collar employees, 238 votes. Footnote 64. The Bolshevik response was simply to bypass the Soviet by forming a new Sormovo Bureau of the Nizhny Novgorod Soviet. From early March, the Mensheviks in many cities launched a campaign to create assemblies of factory plenipotentiaries as alternatives to the Soviets, which they said were rigged by the communist majority. In Petrograd, where the movement was strongest, the assembly grew to 200 delegates, 
drawn from 72 factories, who claimed to represent over two-thirds of the city's workforce, mainly in the metal and paper industries. The assemblies campaigned for civil rights, independent trade unions, and free Soviet elections, with the ultimate aim of reconvening the Constituent Assembly. Yet delegates conceded that worker grievances were predominantly about unemployment, bread rations, and freedom to leave and enter the city. Plans to call a general strike in Petrograd on the 2nd of July were stymied by the Cheka, but it is clear that rank-and-file attitudes were inconsistent and divided. As the delegates ruefully noted, quote, The masses have still not turned away from the Bolsheviks and are not completely disenchanted. End quote. Footnote 65. In the Volga and Urals, a section of the working class welcomed the revolt of the Czech Legion. Podvoisky, chair of the Supreme Military Inspectorate, reported, quote, with rare exceptions, workers are hostile to Soviet power. The unemployed from the demobilized factories are the most hostile towards us, and a certain number of workers at the pipe and cartridge factories in Samara have gone over to the Cossacks. Footnote 66. In Siberia, railway workers, the most active contingent of organized labor, also assisted the Czech Legion. At Izevsk in Vyatka province, an overwhelmingly working-class town, SR maximalists in the Red Guard so alienated the local populace through harsh requisitions, searches, and arrests that Mensheviks and SRs won 70% of the 135 seats in new elections to the Soviet in May. Desperate to maintain control of one of the country's most important munition plants at a time when the democratic counter-revolution was in the ascendant, the Bolsheviks promptly disbanded the Soviet. On the 5th of August, as the Czech Legion drew near, the Bolsheviks announced a compulsory draft, which led to the SR-dominated Veterans Union, with backing from workers at the plant, seizing control of the town. Thousands of workers, including those at the neighbouring Votkinsk works, joined the People's Army of the SRs, while those who did not remained neutral, until they were subdued by the Second Red Army in mid-November. In general, workers had no illusions about the nature of the Kolchak regime, however. Between January and November 1919, there were 1,130 mainly economic conflicts involving 82,000 strikers in the regions it controlled, and in cities such as Krasnoyarsk, Irkutsk, and Vladivostok, workers remained strong supporters of the Bolshevik cause. On the 21st of December 1919, the SR Political Center, which favored cooperation with the Bolsheviks, instigated an uprising at the Keremkovo coal mines, which had been nationalized by the Kolchak regime for pragmatic reasons. Quickly, workers, militias, and partisans seized the initiative for the Bolsheviks, marking a turning point in the revival of red fortunes in Siberia. Footnote 67. Similarly, in the Donbass, where General S. V. Denisov had hundreds of miners in Yuzivka hanged, a throwback to the days of Stolypin, the experience of white rule firmed up support for the Bolsheviks. 
All the white administrations suppressed trade unions and restored the authority of the factory owners, so they were extremely unpopular with workers. This is not to say that worker support for the Red Cause was by any means solid. Throughout the Civil War, there were regular stoppages, most of them limited in scope and duration, caused mainly by dissatisfaction over food supply. By spring 1920, more than one million workers were on special rations, but on average these were fulfilled by only one quarter to one-fifth. In Petrograd in spring 1919, an average worker's daily calorie intake was 1,598, less than half of what it would be four years later. Footnote 68. In 1920, there were 146 strikes involving 135,000 workers in 18 provinces, including Petrograd and Moscow. Footnote 69. These strikes were mainly over failure to fulfill rations, but since the regime was now responsible for supplies, they inevitably took on a political coloration. Moreover, the fanatical way in which the Bolsheviks often reacted to worker protest served to politicize discontent still further. From 1919, this mainly took the form of attacks on the privileges enjoyed by officials. Quote, the communists receive high salaries and food rations, eat three dishes in their canteens, while we are given slops as though we were pigs. End quote. Footnote 70. It was often possible to diffuse such discontent by bringing in emergency supplies, but the regime had few qualms about using repressive methods if it believed they were necessary. These included confiscation of strikers' ration cards, lockouts, mass dismissals, followed by selective rehiring, and, in extremists, the deployment of armed force. In autumn 1920, after the civil war had ended, the chairman of the provincial party committee in Ekaterinoslav reported, quote, In September, the workers here rose up against the formation and dispatch to the countryside of food detachments. We decided to pursue an iron policy. We closed down the tram park, fired all workers and employees, and sent some of them to the concentration camp. Some, of the appropriate age, we sent to the front and others we handed over directly to the Cheka. This had a beneficial effect, and the flow of workers into the food detachments intensified. End quote. Footnote 71. The Bolsheviks saw the hand of the opposition parties at work in every outburst of worker unrest. While it is doubtful whether Mensheviks and SRs were in a position to instigate worker protests on any significant scale, not least because Cheka repression had left them without unified leadership or effective organization, they were able at times to channel grievances into demands for free Soviets, free trade unions, freedom of speech and assembly, and an end to coercion and dictatorship. Most notably, this occurred on the 10th of March 1919 when Pudilov workers, angry at the absence of bread, passed a left SR resolution by 10,000 votes to 22, with four abstentions, excoriating the, quote, servile yoking of workers to the factories, and calling for the destruction of the commissarocracy, and for the transfer of factory management into the hands of free trade unions, 
It was endorsed by workers at the Skorokod Shoe Factory, the Alexandrovsky Railway Workshops, and possibly several other workplaces. When Lunacharsky spoke to the workers of the Rostestvensky tram park, he was assailed with cries of, White guard, tough, take off that fur coat. The suddenness with which worker protest escalated into an attack on the regime prompted the authorities to bring in sailors from Kronstadt to restore order. At an emergency session of the Petrograd, Soviet Zinoviev said that only backward workers were left at Pudilov, and, in a neat reversal of the standard stereotype, women at the Nevskaya cotton mill were induced to pass a resolution condemning the Pudilov workers, which was published under the headline, quote, The Voice of the Conscious Workers, end quote, footnote 72. Yet support for such political opposition was an expression of anger and frustration rather than of principled commitment. The next major crisis came in Petrograd in February 1921, discussed further below in the section on the Kronstadt Rebellion, following endless disruption of supplies and failure to meet ration norms. The Mensheviks were able to revive the assembly of factory plenipotentiaries as a counterweight to the Soviet, which had lost the confidence of workers. But the assembly was not as successful as in spring 1918. On the 25th of February, martial law was declared, which proved to be one cause of the Kronstadt Rebellion. Tukhachevsky informed Lenin that the workers of Petrograd are definitely unreliable, but in fact the fears of the authorities that the city's workers might rise up came to nothing. Once the rebellion in Kronstadt had been suppressed, worker activists were rounded up and fired from their jobs. The key to diffusing worker militancy, however, lay essentially in the use of the carrot. Workers were given a ration of meat and some basic goods, and roadblock detachments were removed to allow them to trade with the peasantry. In April, the Bolsheviks also organized a non-party worker conference at which workers were allowed, for the first time in several years, to vent their grievances. Footnote 73. So long as civil war dragged on, it is probably fair to say that in spite of deep bitterness at the conditions they were forced to endure, the majority of workers had no desire to jeopardize the fortunes of the Red Army. When Yudinich threatened Petrograd in autumn 1919, many worked a 16-hour shift to produce the weapons to defeat him. At the beginning of 1920, the Menshevik leader Martov conceded, quote, So long as we criticized Bolshevism, we were applauded. As soon as we went on to say that a changed regime was needed to fight Denikin successfully, our audience turned cold or even hostile. End quote. Footnote 74. The majority of workers were disgruntled at aspects of the regime, but not solidly behind the socialist opposition. During the general strike in Petrograd in February 1921, mentioned above and further discussed below, Gazenberg, who was responsible for safeguarding the Skokorod shoe factory, asked strikers on the streets what their demands were. Quote, We want a bit more bread, we want to purge the high ups, there are too many Borzoi among them, and we want new elections to the Soviet. End quote. Footnote 75. There were some who raised demands for a constituent assembly, 
some railway workers and some metal workers in Petrograd and Sormovo, but generally workers wanted a Soviet system that lived up to its ideals. If the level of political sophistication was not high, it is clear that many ideals of the revolution had bitten deep. Workers evinced fierce hostility to Borzoi, counterposing us, the toiling people, to them, the parasites. They believed passionately in equality and detested privilege, especially when enjoyed by communists. When judged against these ideals, they found the Bolsheviks gravely wanting, yet they were not confident that the overthrow of the regime would do anything to further their ideals. Footnote 76 there was no credible alternative. And that's going to do it for this week. Next time we'll be finishing out this chapter. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network you can go to abnormalmapping.com or patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts and support the network overall. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.